Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. Uh, This week we are going to talk about a very famous death of a very famous person, and I am happy to report for at least our purposes on this show, that it is a death that is not without some controversy attached. Well, I would assume so, yes. Caroline, today we are talking about the death of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Amadeus, Amadeus, Amadeus. Mm-hmm. He rocked us. Uh, shocked back when, us. Back when Falco uh, came around in the 70s, I want to say. 80s. In the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but long before that, He's one of the most formative composers uh, ever of the classical period. And, um, well, what do you know about Mozart and about his death, Carrie? Well, that could be two different things, I think, in this case, because one of my favorite movies is Amadeus, um, the semi-biopic, but it's really more based on a play by Peter Schaefer, which I also really love. Um, Is that his screenplay, too? You know, I don't know. I don't know if he wrote it. I know the director was Milos Forman. Uh, we did a, a class on him in college, but I had already seen Amadeus by this point. I make people watch it, even though it's like three hours long because the acting, everything about it, I just adore. Um, so I know, I know the basics of Mozart's life. I know his music, you know, as most people will, maybe a little more because I'm familiar through Amadeus. Um, I know the Amadeus version of his death, but I don't know how legit that is. And, uh, yeah, I do know that he died fairly young and there was some question around his death, but that's really the facts that I know on that end. Yeah. Um, definitely some questions around the death and, uh, Air Salieri, as you, uh, obliquely alluded to, does come into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe not in the way that you think. We'll see, Carrie. Well, well, we'll talk about it when we talk about the movie, which I'm sure we'll do. Oh, we can talk about the movie now if you want to. Well, no, I think it would make more sense with the context of his life. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, and with that said, let's get into Mozart's life. We can't very well talk about his death without covering, um, you know, you can't have a death without a life, Carrie. Absolutely. And our sources for the uh, life of Mozart uh, today include Maynard Solomon's Mozart, A Life, um, as well as some material from uh, PBS and also this great music historian, Dr. Martin Hatzinger, Mm. uh, a paper of his came in very handy. Um, So, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was born January 27th, 1756 in Salzburg, Holy Roman Empire. That's post birthday uh that's true uh, january 27th well we don't know his actual birthday but that's what we picked that's what we celebrate that's when he gets a little that's when he gets his little extra little, cheese yeah some extra cheese in his little birthday hat that he hates so well um sharp-eared listeners will note that the holy roman empire is not a country anymore um what do you mean sharp-eared i think most people know that mozart's uh birthplace was in modern day austria Mm-hmm. He was the last of seven children to Leopold and Anna Maria Mozart. And Leopold was a minor composer himself, um, or a pretty successful composer, um, just 
seems especially minor in comparison to his son. Mm -hmm. Um, But he was an experienced music teacher who had actually just had a pretty successful, um, regionally successful uh, violin textbook published the same year that Mozart was born. Um, He must have been a busy guy uh, with the seven kids and all the music lessons. I feel like he probably didn't have much to do with the kids if we're going by standards of the day, you know. Well, maybe, I don't know what his role was in the life of his uh, first five children. And I actually, I'm not sure that all of them survived very long. Mm-hmm. Um, but the youngest two, Nanerl and Wolfgang, uh, Leopold did at least show an interest in their music education. And in his turn, young Wolfgang showed interest in the clavier lessons his sister uh, Nanerl was taking. Nanerl. Yep. When she was just... one for the list. uh, Yeah, I think it's actually a nickname. Mm. Um, And she was another Anna Maria. I see. Okay. Um, But so when Nanerl was taking lessons with her father at seven years old and Wolfgang was three, um, in between her songs, Wolfgang would just kind of crawl over to the clavier and pick out perfect thirds on the piano, just sort of to amuse himself, giggling, you know, like a like a little toddler does, except he's playing a perfect third. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's loving it. That was his little game. And so his father saw some potential there and started teaching the kid a couple of minuets and little pieces that he could play more. Nanerl said later, more is like a game than anything else, just to entertain uh, what do you do with a toddler. To mm-hmm. keep him from wandering into hot ovens and things. Oh, you know how toddlers are always doing that. And by either four or five years old, some sources differ, he was composing his first little minuets of his own. Now, were they legit? Because I was also like composing my own little plays at five years old, but they were horseshit. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, like, were they actual pieces of music that made sense as music? Yes, they are simple piano pieces, but they do make sense, and they're uh, they're not bad. Oh. They are known today as K one through five, and you can, in fact, um, find and listen to them. That K is for um, Kochel, who's the guy who cataloged all of Mozart's pieces originally. So they're all K something. Oh, and these are one through five because. They're the ones he did when he was like five years old. That's very cute. Um, anyway, Leopold Mozart knew what he had on his hands. You know, as, as a kid, I was, I was definitely one of those watch me put on a performance type kids. But Mozart must have been another level of that. Like people actually wanted to watch and weren't forced by gunpoint like I did. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he would spend basically all of his childhood performing for people mm. um, because... Leopold, who once referred to Wolfgang as the miracle which God let be born in Salzburg. Wow, not no pressure from dad at all. Um, basically quit composing himself entirely after Mozart and after both kids, but especially Mozart showed uh, so much promise and he dedicated himself entirely to Mozart and Nanerl's um, education and caretaking. Did she get kind of a bad hand because she was a woman? Like, was she not taken as seriously as an artist? Well, she wasn't a freak genius the way that Mozart was. Right. Like, she was a very competent uh, keyboard player and violinist. But there was probably only so far she could have gone with that. Right. Be, at the time. Oh, that, that yes. Yeah, professionally, you mean? Yeah. I mean, there were some, but often they were like paired with their husbands or, you know, things like that. Certainly don't know of, I don't, you know, you can't name any female composers from that time. So, yeah. 
Um, it definitely was harder as in any other field. Mm -hmm. Um, Nanuro ended up in a bad marriage and, um, you know, just kind of lived, unfortunately, a pretty typical life of a, of a woman of the time. Mm. Um, but meanwhile, (laughs) while they were still children, um, by the time Wolfgang was six, so Nanuro was 10, Leopold was taking them on continent spanning performance tours. Um, was he a real stage dad? Oh, the biggest stage dad. They were going to Munich, Vienna, Paris, London. They were performing in imperial courts and in front of kings and queens. And mom's home with the other five or however many are alive? Um, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the mom would come with them on some of these trips, but not most of them. Mostly it was just Leopold and the kids. Um now, by the way, in between all of this, uh, in between European tours, Mozart wrote his first symphony at age eight years old. Show off. Show off. <laughs> um, but the trips weren't all sunshine and rainbows. They were, you know, pretty tr- primitive travel conditions. You're trying to make a buck here, not spend a buck. So um, it's not like they were riding first class uh, and the kids spend a lot of time on uncomfortable trains and in pretty squalid living conditions. That were a far cry from the imperial courts they were performing in. Mm-hmm. And also during their European tour, first Leopold and then both children had life-threatening illnesses that, mm. um, you know, really sort of put a damper on things. How how was the family in terms of money? Um, I mean, I'm sure middle- that the kids brought in a lot of money at these performances. They were middle class um, before he basically quit music. Leopold wa- had a position in the um, orchestra for Salzburg. Okay. So, um, you know, he had a steady music, steady job as a musician, um, making a, mm-hmm. a pretty good, you know, lower to lower middle class to middle class. Uh, Supplementing with like tutoring and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. And now... Um, Scholars differ on how much money they actually made off of the tour. I mean, especially because of their bouts of illness and stuff. Uh, this was probably a money neutral or a money losing or a slight gain, you know, but it's not like he was making a ton of money off his kids here. He just had to show them to the world. Hmm. So at times these must have been tough, uh, tough for a, a little kid to, uh, to do all of this in just a couple of years. Um, but he also got to meet um, Johann Christian Bach, who became a, a major influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is the... <laughs> I thought he was Sebastian. Well, Johann Christian Bach is the... Uh, this was in London because Johann Christian Bach, uh, sometimes called the British Bach, is the uh. 18th child of Johann Sebastian Bach, Sebastian Bach. Gotcha. Were they all named Johann, like George Foreman's kids are all... George Foreman? George. Uh, no, I don't think that they were, but it is funny that he, you know, you put a period on the end of the sentence, the last kid gets a Johan too. Hmm. Um, so Mozart and his dad and all... Well, that's because he ran out of names. Yes. He had to go back to Johan. He only knew 17 names. Um, <laughs> uh, Mozart and his dad and often his sister kept on jaunting around the world on their periodic music tours. Until he was 17, and then it was time, uh, like any respectable young man, to settle down and get a job. That's a long period of time to be on tour. It's like, what, 10 years? Basically 11 years. He spent, it seems like half of his time traveling around playing in royal courts and stuff. Wow. And like you said, traveling back then was not easy. No. (laughs) Nor fast. This isn't overseas travel, you know, so at least there's that. Um, I guess. 
uh, except to you know you got to tr- cross the channel to get to london anyway yeah it, it's a lot to put a kid through for 11 solid years um but in 1773 mozart got a job as a court musician working for the archbishop of salzburg back home his hometown um and in this period he bloomed creatively he wrote a lot and some pieces that you still hear places today uh, but he felt like a big fish in a small pond how long did this last? So he's 17 when he first gets the job. Yep. And he hung around there for four years. So he's barely into his 20s and he's just going crazy writing these symphonies and whatever that we still know today. Yeah. Uh, he did, like I say, wrote his first, uh, he wrote his first symphony at age eight. But um, I think in this court musician period, it's a lot of um, simpler pieces, actually. Like marches and... Well, you're doing concertos and minuets, piano pieces, mm-hmm. uh, solos for violin and things. Uh, he would eventually write solos for basically every instrument. Uh, not trumpet, I think, but basically everything else. Um, not a jazzy guy. No, I guess not. Uh, what he really wanted to do, though, was write bigger pieces. He wanted to write operas. Um, but there just wasn't a lot of call for opera in Salzburg. And actually, uh, about three years into his job, they closed the court theater, so there would be even less call for stage music. Mm. And so in 1777, Mozart quit the Salzburg job. Okay. And he's how old? 21-ish? Yeah, about 21. Mm-hmm. And he would spend the next year and a half um, just sort of bopping around royal courts everyone did at 22 23 different orchestras. <laughs> not royal courts but you know um he's just looking for work and mostly unsuccessfully we've all been there uh yeah uh first mozart went to the Mannheim orchestra uh where he thought he might get a job but it didn't pan out and he was hanging out there for a couple of months and then he took an extended stay in paris um, where Mozart fell into debt and <laughs> pawned all of his valuables and was staying with a uh, local journalist for a little while, but then that guy didn't like him anymore and kicked him out. Uh, Mozart's mother was in town with him too, but then she died of a sudden illness. While staying with him? Yeah. Oof. Really bad. There are some rumors. I don't want to even... I, I shudder to repeat it because it's unfa- It's really pretty unfounded, but there were some whispers that he might have delayed calling for help with his mother's illness because of the financial constraints. Oof, that's a brutal thing to say. He loved his mother very, very much. Mozart was close with his mother. But uh, yeah. there were some whispers at the time that being strapped for cash might have contributed to her death. Wow. In 1779, after he had burned his bridges in Paris, uh, Mozart came home to Salzburg to work as the organist and concertmaster, again for the Archbishop of Salzburg, same guy. Uh, and this is a job his father had gotten him. Uh, Leopold was trying to get Mozart to come home and just work in Salzburg forever. That's what all of his letters to Mozart seem to have said. Uh, we don't have a lot of Leopold's letters to Mozart. We have a lot of Mozart's return letters to Leopold. Mm-hmm. Shut up about Salzburg already. He's in, yeah, it's Mozart constantly wanting to kind of go out and be his own man and find uh, find what he's supposed to do, find work as a composer. Yeah. Um, but Mozart came home 
Dad got him the job back at the royal court. Now he's the organist and concert master. And he was making three times what he did in his old Salzburg job. But predictably, he continued to feel strangled, both financially and creatively, uh, you know, in his new job in the old town. Mm-hmm. In 1781, the archbishop took Mozart on a trip to Vienna. And he was very excited about this. He wrote in letters to his dad, like, I, I just really want to meet the emperor. Mm-hmm. And I know if I can play for the emperor, uh, uh, it'll open up new opportunities for me. Uh, really excited about this trip to uh, to Vienna. And indeed, he did get to meet the emperor. He got uh, l- lots of opportunities and offers to play p- uh, different places, sometimes for more than his yearly salary with the archbishop. But he wasn't allowed to take any of those jobs. The archbishop had kind of like a non-compete no. clause. Oh, God. Uh, so Mozart was not happy with that. And after a couple of gigs that he like wasn't allowed to do, he tried to quit. And the archbishop said, no, you can't quit. Uh, and they sort of argued back and forth. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> he said, no, you can't, you can't leave my service. I don't accept your resignation. And they argued about it for like a month. And finally, this is true. The archbishop said, okay, but you have to go, you'll be dismissed with a, quote, kick in the ass, end quote, literally. And his steward, who was like this duke or count or something, <laughs> literally had to go and deliver his message to Mozart. And then Mozart had to turn around and the guy kicked him in the ass. Old times were weird. I mean, everything's about like, you know, weird honor compacts and stuff. I guess. So it was weird, and meanwhile... <laughs> yeah, that's a weird thing. He, he was exchanging angry letters back and forth, or at least heated letters back and forth with his dad the whole time, because his dad's going, what are you doing fighting with the archbishop? Just come you back home. have a steady home. job here in Salzburg. Don't throw this all away. Um, but the long and short of it was, Mozart was now free to do what he wanted to do, which was stay in Vienna and make his living as a freelance composer. Tougher job nowadays, I would think. Um, much harder. <laughs> uh, being a sculptor is harder too now. Uh, mm-hmm. Back in the day, and this is where this is sort of coming to the end of this time, Mozart's day. Um, but there would be, you know, you'd have wealthy patrons who would just pay people to make art for them, um, or just, I mean, just pay them to hang around and then pay them more when they want some some art made. Um, because it was like, well, I have the best artists in my sort of little stable of artists, and that was an ego thing. And um, But I think when artists can have that, when they can have patrons just support them to spend all of their time doing it. Um, sometimes and speaking it of, to- go to patreon.com slash ain't it scary <laughs> if you want us to spend all of our time doing this. We will for a price. <laughs> and that price is uh, bread. Bread and my mortgage. Um. So, yeah, Mozart's dad uh, was pissed. This is kind of, it seems overstated to me in, like, the Schaefer play. I think relations with Mozart's dad were a little strained, maybe, mm-hmm. for the rest of his life after he moved to, to, to Vienna, but they didn't break off contact. Yeah, but you also have to think, like, the mom died in Mozart's care. Mm-hmm. There are these whispers. I'm sure the dad heard it. I, I doubt he believed it if he was still friendly with his son. But, um, 
Yeah, I, I feel like there was a lot of complicated stuff there. The dad's also got this sort of Murray Wilson complex of like, I, I was decent at, at this music thing, but my son's a genius. And I'm referring to Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys here, yep. whose father um, was intensely, deeply jealous of him. And uh, so acted abusively towards him because he was such a genius. So there, often there are these sort of complicated parental relationships with prodigy children. Yeah. Um, Leopold has his defenders and he has his like haters. Yeah. Everything I've read makes me want to come down somewhere in the middle. I think he was a strict guy. I think he was a little bit unpleasant. I think he was really proud of his kids and especially of uh, Mozart and he wanted to have a bigger part in his life. Mm -hmm. One could argue that was so he could have some more of the glory involved in that. But... Um, you know, I, I I don't think he was a Joe Jackson. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair assessment. Um, meanwhile, Mozart quickly became the most celebrated pianist in Vienna. The most celebrated what? Pianist. Ah. <laughs> uh, he was a, a, an able hand with the ladies too, from what I understand. <laughs> so so there is that. But um, yeah, no, he f had no problem finding work just performing as a solo pianist, whether. Um, at first in, you know, clubs and theaters and things. Clubs. There weren't clubs. But, uh, you know, at first in theaters and performing spaces. Um, and then he started kind of doing some uh, weird, innovative stuff when there just weren't big enough halls eventually. After a few years in Vienna, there weren't big enough halls to host his concerts. Mm. So he would just have... So he went to stadium tours. Well, he would do shows in ballrooms of like uh, hotels or large houses. Mm. He would do shows. This uh, is his eras tour, Taylor Swift styles. Totally. He would uh, <laughs> he would have them empty out part of a hotel and do the show in there. Wow. Um, but but that would that was that's still a few years away. Uh, at the beginning, Mozart just got super nerdy about the Baroque masters. He had this doctor patron early on who was like, "Oh, you got to get into you got to listen to this Bach and Handel stuff I've got. Look at these look at these scores." Mhm. Mm um he also met Joseph Haydn in 1783 and the two comp uh, composers became uh, quick friends. The mm. following year Haydn would introduce Mozart into the Freemasons. Ooh, are we going to talk about that later? Um we, Freemason conspiracy? Then may come into it. Yay! Um, Haydn would actually later tell Leopold Mozart, who, by the way, was also a Freemason, I tell you before God, and as an honest man, your son is the greatest composer known to me by person or repute. He has taste, and furthermore, the most profound knowledge of composition. Wow. And that's another composer who's still celebrated today, yeah. speaking. I, I, I recognize that name. <laughs> so, yeah, that's wild. Um, so, as court musician to the Archbishop, Mozart had made 150 florins a year. As the court organist and concertmaster for the Archbishop, he had made 450 florins a year. Do we know what that is nowadays? I cannot find a way to easily convert that to modern currency. Fair enough. Um, but I, but just for comparison's sake, by the mid-1780s, that was four fifty a year. By the mid seventeen eighties, Mozart and his wife Constanzi uh, were living in an apartment that cost four hundred sixty florins a year. Mm. So just their rent was more than his previous salary had been. And he, Mozart bought himself a custom piano that cost nine hundred florins, 
Wow, was it like encrusted in diamonds, Liberace style or something? I mean, ivory keys, gold and pearl inlays, all that kind of stuff. A pool table that cost him 300 florins. Mm. So he liked to spend money. Carl, uh, their son, was uh, attending an expensive boarding school. Okay. Um, They had a son in... So he got married. First of all. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mozart got married in August 1782. So shortly, I mean, about a year after Mozart moved to Vienna. Uh, when he first came to Vienna, he was staying with a family he had met in Mannheim. And at that time, he had been trying to get into the pants of the eldest daughter in this family, who was a really impressive musician. Um, and she knocked him back. But then he met the same family again in Vienna, and he needed a place to stay. So he was crashing with them. And he immediately started hitting on the third daughter, who was Constanzi. Hmm. Kind of the Prince Charles strategy. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. What's good, for the, what's good for the king is good for the composer. Hmm. Uh, and so they were finally married August 4th, 1782. Um, Carl had been their second child. Uh, they would have six children in all, but only two of them survived infancy. Hmm. So uh, Carl had been born 1784. Uh, their first child was born 1783, but uh, just lived a couple of months. Anyway, Carl was attending an expensive boarding school, and the Mozarts were saving basically no money whatsoever, even though they were making a ton. Right, so they were spending it all on their exorbitant rent and fancy living and Beautiful pianos. School. Yeah. Yeah. If you're around this class of people a lot and you're not an actual aristocrat, you you still have you're expected to be at their level. You're still expected to dress somewhat as well as them. Um, well, and put think, on appearances. Yeah, I think Mozart was also always bad with money. When he, yeah. you know, when he went to Paris, he was pawning off valuables within months. Right, but then you pair that with the expectation of aristocracy. Right, but I bet it had more to do with just expensive tastes and i mean he loved great food he loved good wine he loved drinking lots of wine whether it was good or not um so i i I think he had expensive tastes no matter what and and he was gonna need to make a lot of money to uh support them Mm -hmm. now the masons yay (laughs) in late 1784 mozart apprenticed to a masonic lodge called Oh boy. Zer Voltatiket. Zer Voltatiket. Yes. Which means beneficence. Mm hmm. Um, and he was possibly introduced to this lodge, as I said, by his friend Joseph Haydn. Um, but as I also said, Mozart's father was a Mason, so it's not like the concept was unfamiliar to him. Mm-hmm. Um, but being pretty famous around Vienna, he was kind of able to bounce around to whatever lodge he wanted. So he would pop into this lodge or that lodge for a meeting uh, and lead the boys in a song. (laughs) Uh, He would compose special little tunes for the Masons to sing together. Um, You know, it's a boys club. Mm -hmm. People will point to what they say are Masonic themes in Mozart's music, especially in the Magic Flute. Um, We'll get to that a little bit more later. But it is often stuff like, See, he uses three-part harmony there, and that's to emphasize the importance... Of the number three. Of the number three in Masonic rituals. And it's like, well, three-part harmony is But also, pretty... that's like a 
a thing. Pretty common. Also, I've heard of that. Yeah, so. It's like a pretty common thing in music. So, um, you know. In 1786 and 87, Mozart got back into writing opera. Remember, that's what he had been wanting to do when he left Salzburg for the first time. Mm -hmm. And it's in this period he composed the famous Marriage of Figaro Mm -hmm. and Don Giovanni. Mm. Um, As portrayed in the movie Amadeus, uh, just before or uh, a little bit before the premiere of Don Giovanni, Leopold, his father, died. Yeah. And so in the film, they say that Don Giovanni is like his darkest play and it only ran for five performances because it was so dark. Right. And that it was, uh, by the way, it did only have a very short run. It might've been seven performances. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mozart at the time blamed Salieri, among others, in in letters to his father. Um, Before he died. Yes. Uh, Oh, wait, no, that can't be. So that must've been a different... um, person he was complaining to but uh, he did write letters to his father complaining that Salieri was stopping his uh, operas from being put on mm. um, so Leopold finally died in 1787 um, kind of a loss of a, of a relationship he may never have fully repaired yeah Mozart um, but it's unlikely he, he composed Don Giovanni about his dead father or anything because I think it was pretty much finished before like, Leopold died not that long before it premiered. Dramatic license, Sean. Lots of dramatic license. Um, in, sep- in December 1787, later than one might think based on that movie, though, uh, Mozart was appointed chamber composer by the Emperor Joseph II. This is six years into his time in Austria. He finally gets a full-time job with the Emperor. Well, it's a part-time gig, actually, mm-hmm. uh, that pays, quote, only, end quote, 800 florins a year. I thought you were going to say exposure. (laughs) Which, unless there's been crazy inflation over the last couple of years, right? It seems like 800 florins. It's not going to support his 460 florin a year. I mean, things are going to be tight in that apartment, right? But um, it seems like you could live on that. Yeah, basically double his rent. Um, but they would have some some lean times. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was important income to help get them through because times were going to get very lean for musicians in Vienna generally as the country was now at war and patrons had a lot less money to be patroning around. Mm-hmm. Um, so by 1788, Mozart was making a third what he had been a few years earlier. Because he's probably also not putting on shows very much, and he's not getting any box office out of that. He had, uh, when he got into writing big operas and symphonies and things, he did way less of the public shows. And it's a little hard to pick apart whether that was because people had less disposable income because of the war, so there was less attendance at the shows, or whether it was just because he was getting really into his these bigger works and he, he was getting fussy about doing little shows. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a fussy guy, you know. <laughs> um, so Mozart and family moved to the suburbs, what a lot of people may have to do when they're, if they're making a little, or if they want to spend a little less money on their uh, living expenses. Uh, but, and I think this is very telling about Mozart, uh, his friends at the time said that Mozart didn't reduce his rent at all when he moved to the suburbs, but only increased his living space. <laughs> Okay, so he so he's getting a better deal overall. Yes, but he's paying exactly the, exactly what he did. But for now, a big house out in the suburbs. Mozart, that's not that's not what that meant. Um, he was meanwhile writing lots of uh, his this fellow Mason, 
um, we have some letters from named Puckberg uh, said that Mozart wrote lots of quote pitiful letters, <laughs> uh, just begging for loans and begging for money. Um, he was still composing at this time, but uh, slower. And these are bigger works, so they take longer. But he just wasn't um, a flurry of compositional activity like he had been in the past. Maybe a little bit depressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he wasn't just laying around. He made trips to places like Dresden and Berlin and Mannheim and Frankfurt, um, trying to build the brand, you know, maybe look for some foreign patrons, um, get some funding. And um, keep that hustle going. Keep that hustle going. Hustle culture, Mozart. <sighs> yeah. Uh, that brings us to the end of 1790 and the beginning of 1791, which would be a very productive year for Mozart, but also his last one on earth. Damn. How old is he now? When he, di- when he dies, he will be 35 years old. Jeez. So he did a lot. Yeah. Uh, and we will cover that final year very quickly. And then, as promised, the death of Mozart when we return. Didn't you just turn 35? Let's not talk about it. Oh, boy. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do. So you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. Welcome back. When last we left you, we had uh, brought Mozart right to the brink of his final year in Vienna, and indeed, on Earth. Um, And as I said, this was an incredibly productive year for Mozart, uh, seeming to maybe come out of the uh, doldrums or the depression he might have been in for the uh, previous few years, uh, maybe a little creatively fallow. Um, This is the period when he composed The Magic Flute the famous opera, as well as some of his most beloved concertos. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of a sudden, he wasn't borrowing money from his buddy Puckberg anymore. <laughs> he was starting to pay off his debts. Um, so things were going kind of well for Mozart. Everything's coming up Mozart. Everything's coming up Mozart. Until. The decline may have started, um, especially according to his wife's account, Uh, On September 6th of 1791, Mozart was in Prague for the premiere of the opera La Clemenza di Tito, which had been written for Leopold's uh, coronation, uh, when the composer fell ill. He was uh, all of a sudden very pale and very tired. Hmm. He made it through the premiere, and he kept working through it. He came home, kept composing. But his wife would later say that at this time he became despondent and very anxious about his death. So he got sick in Prague. He got sick in Prague, is what it sounds like. Right. Um, and one day in late September, riding in the park, Mozart told Constanzi that he felt like he was writing the uh, Requiem, which had recently been 
uh, we'll, we'll talk about this, but the Requiem had recently been, you know, the Requiem in D minor, his famous uh, oh, I, I know unfinished it, yeah. work had recently been commissioned by a mysterious benefactor. And uh, so one day riding in the park in a carriage, Mozart told Constanzi that he was, he felt sure he was writing the Requiem for himself with tears in his eyes. He said, I feel definitely that I will not last much longer. I am sure I have been poisoned. I cannot rid myself of this idea. Did he go to the doctor? No, on September 30th, the Magic Flute premiered in Vienna and everybody loved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, including Salieri, in fact. And um, and we'll talk about who Salieri is in a bit yes, as well. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, yeah I'll, I'll come back to that story, actually. Um, so, so the Magic Flute premiered. It was a huge right. success. And then he forgot all about it. He, he didn't forget all about it. He, in fact, told Constanzi, like, you know that thing I said about being poisoned? I was talking crazy. I feel great. I'm going to work on this Requiem. Give it to me now. Right. So he's he's got all of this positive energy coming in. And he's like, yeah, I'm good. It's he, really, it's giving him like a placebo effect. It, um, you know, you, you hesitate to, to psychoanalyze people this far, uh, uh, removed from, from them in time, but it Let's is, do it. <laughs> he does in many ways seem very much the sort of passionate manic depressive artist. Right. Like, you know, this, this thing that I'm doing, if it's not the best thing, I will die. <laughs> and because this thing that I just made, people say it's the best thing. I feel like a new man. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. manic depressive artist. Welcome to the club, Wolfie. So after that, his health was steady, and according to some reports, may have even improved a little through mid-October and early November. Until on, on November 20th, 1791, Mozart's health took a turn for the worse. A really severe, sudden turn for the worse. He was now bedridden, he had severe swelling in his extremities and his abdomen, and pain all over his body, a high fever, and a bumpy rash. Mm. As he was nursed by Constanzi and her younger sister, and attended to by the family doctor, visited by a few students once in a while, until he died early in the morning on December 5th, 1791, Mm. at 35 years old. The rash is throwing me off. I don't, I'm not sure where that fits into kind of typical diseases at the time. Mm-hmm. But that's that's sad. I mean, it's it's weird how he had this sort of prophetic vision of his own death. It sounds dramatic, but he was correct. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned, he had friends coming over to visit. Um, another note here about the Requiem. Uh, anyone who doesn't know a requiem is like a funeral mass. Mm-hmm. So this is a big foreboding, you know, it's a really cool piece of music that Mozart wrote. Eh, probably less than half of before he died. And then one of his students, uh, finished the guy who finished it was, it was named Franz. It's <laughs> X A V E R. Xaver. X A V E R. Yeah. I don't see an I. Xaver. Franz Xaver Sussmeyer. Uh, was the guy who finished the Requiem. And there's conflicting reports. Some people say, uh, I think this started with Constanzi, that Mozart sang or dictated parts of the Requiem um, from his deathbed while Sussmeyer was writing it down. And that's the scene in Amadeus, spoiler alert. Yes, although it's Salieri who's sitting by his bedside there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it has been pointed out that for many reasons, it was to Constanzi's benefit for as much of the Requiem, ideally all of the Requiem to appear to have been written by her husband. Sure, because people aren't going to want a half Mozart. They want the full Mozart. They want his whole last thing. There's a paying customer waiting for a Mozart. Mm -hmm. And by the way, uh, oh, and if he was... I don't know if he was dictating it to anyone. I'm not sure it would have been Sussmeyer who wasn't actually the first one Constanzi asked to finish the Requiem after Mozart's death. Mm-hmm. There was another guy first who was like, I can't make heads or tails of it. <laughs> um, do we know who the benefactor is? This is great. Yes, we do. Okay. And it was not Antonio, Sal- <laughs> Antonio Salieri in disguise as Mo- the ghost of Mozart's father. Which happens in the movie. <laughs> uh, it was, in fact, Franz von Walseg who is not Franz von Walseg. He's a weird guy. He was this eccentric (laughs) count who is uh, somewhat, he was somewhat notorious for commissioning works from composers secretly, anonymously, and then passing them off as things he had written. Ah. And so the Requiem was supposed to be a funeral mass for his own wife who had just died. And he was going to say, I wrote this for my wife because I loved her so much. Wow. (laughs) Uh, so he basically was trying to do the equivalent of like a going on Fiverr, hiring a writer, and then just passing it off like a ghost writer. Having an AI write your texts. Right. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> Franz, come on. Mozart was buried in a common grave at yeah. St. Mark's Cemetery outside Vienna on December 7th. Um, in the movie, he's just his coffin's just kind of yeeted into a big hole. Is that... No. What it what a common grave was. It was not no. So it's not. <laughs> and and I think there's uh confusion in terms at play there. Cause in the movie, I feel he he's dumped into a communal grave, right? Yes. It's a bunch there's a bunch of people. So in maybe there. they saw common and were thinking, Oh, it's like a like a plague pit. Right. But in Vienna at this time their distinction was basically between common graves, which would cost you maybe a hundred fifty florin to be buried in and then aristocratic graves that would cost you like thousands and thousands. Yeah, like a headstone versus a mausoleum sort of vibe. Yeah, but the big difference here is, um, and we've this has come up in conversation a lot recently, but uh, in the common graves, you were allowed to be exhumed after 10 years. So you were really renting a grave. Only with us would it come up in conversation a lot, the idea of exhumation. But you agree. That the idea of like rental graves has come up an eerie amount recently. It's because I was I was telling people how they do things in Portugal, <laughs> well, in Lisbon at the very least. Uh, you have your little rentals, and then you're taken out, and they check if you're done, and then if you're not done, they put you back in, <laughs> and then a few years go by, they check if you're done yet, and so on and so forth. Some reports say no mourners atter- attended the burial of Mozart which actually is pretty consistent with the customs of with Viennese like burial customs at the time people didn't go to the burial that was just you getting dropped in a a, a hole right they went to like the church service exactly uh, and there were memorial services and it would be actually years and years of memorial concerts in uh, Mozart's honor which many Stanzi's of which Constanzi's got to make that coin well exactly many of which would support Constanzi and uh, their two which is absolutely fair <laughs> Because, you know, she was depending on him and he's dead at 35. Exactly. There are rumors that there were five people at Mozart's burial. Um, 
Salieri being one of them. I think that that's just people taking poetic license. Because, <laughs> like, another one of them is his first patron, that guy who introduced him to all of the um, Baroque music. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, anyway. So, controversy. There's lots of different controversies, actually, over Mozart's death. And one is actually just whether it was a long illness or not. Mm-hmm. Um, both Constanzi's and her younger sister's memoirs kind of paint it that way. And that's the sources that informed most of the early biographies of Mozart. So the um, sort of conventional wisdom is he got sick kind of end of August, beginning of September, and it lasted until December and finally killed him. Now, and this is just me speculating here, do people think that maybe that September-ish quote-unquote illness was maybe just anxiety because this thing was about to premiere the magic flute or whatever and maybe he was feeling despondent and like it wasn't good enough and stuff and then it did premiere and it was great and he felt better because it was mostly anxiety but then he actually got sick yes that's exactly what some people say and i could see that because i have made myself sick with worry before and it it does manifest with physical symptoms And it depends on what kind of illness or poison people are trying to ascribe to Mozart's death, whether they want to go with the long illness or the short illness. Um, I feel like his case was mentioned in The Royal Art of Poison, which is that book that we referenced in Renaissance Poisons and Hygienic Horrors, mm -hmm. and I would always recommend it. Um, But yeah, so he's thinking he's poisoned, but he's also... And this is nothing against him, just kind of a dramatic guy. Right. So, again, it could be like, if this doesn't go well, I will die. Right. But it is true that, like, his letters from October and November seem to be in pretty high spirits. And Mm -hmm. he's talking about how much fun he's having writing church. He's loving that requiem. He's like, I got to write more church music. It opens up such... So goth. I love it. Such possibilities. Um, he's super happy with all the success his recent work had been having, the Magic Flute uh, chiefly, but also like the concertos and things he was writing in this time were premiering to immediate acclaim, you know? Um, so he was pretty... His letters are very cheery from, from that month, which is interesting. Mm. Pathologies put forward in Mozart's death include tuberculosis syphilis i was thinking about tuberculosis but i don't know if there's a rash because mm. that that was what was throwing me off but syphilis well you get all fucked up from that rheumatic fever mm-hmm. scarlet fever mm, that could mm, that's interesting trichinosis from eating bad pork Ugh. Uh, yeah mozart had actually written a letter to Constanzi saying he was looking forward to her pork chops oh no 44 days before the start of his illness, which is right in the incubation window for trichinosis. Oh, no. And tri- she killed him with pork chops? She, she, I mean, possibly? Possibly. Trichinosis oh. wasn't identified until the 19th century, so they wouldn't have called it that at the time. Something about bad pork specifically is just so foul. Well, what are the symptoms? Everything that Mozart was going through? Trichinosis symptoms include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, fever, fatigue, abdominal pain, fevers, weakness, chills, muscle pain, uh, achy joints, pink eye, itchy skin. All right, so all the classics. Except for the pink eye, that's gross. Incoordination. So he had a lot of these. Yeah. Itchy skin, you know, that could account for some rash. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is a healed fracture in Mozart's skull 
or at least what they believed to be Mozart's skull. And um, there were reports, uh, he fell a few times, basically. Unexplained falls in 1789 and 1790. Before he was supposedly sick. Before he was supposedly sick. And this has led some researchers to point to a subdural hematoma, which is a pooling of blood in the brain. Mm. And that could have led to the weakness and headaches and fainting that he had in 1790 and 1791. You also have to wonder if there's something else uh, triggering these falls. Well, that's they're, they're pointing to the falls, the subdural hematoma for the falls, and then... But, think- but he falls and then he creates a subdural hematoma, or he has the hematoma and that makes him faint? The hematoma would cause balance issues. I see. So, so the, uh, they point to, to those as mm-hmm. uh, examples of like the chronic hematoma. Mm-hmm. And then, suspecting rheumatic fever, his doctor gave him some pretty aggressive bloodletting in December of 1791. Oh, God. They which, always... if you did have a bunch of blood pooling in your brain, it could very suddenly... Um, decompensate that yeah. pocket of blood and that could do brain damage as well. Or just a whole bunch of other things. I mean, if you're doing bloodletting, you could get infections from all of the sites that you're getting cut and leached or whatever. Um, it's not it's not good for you. Maybe if you already have low iron, things like that, low vitamins and nutrients, you're, you're just getting worse. Bloodletting was a bad thing. Very bad. <laughs> but they just didn't know it for very, very long. Um, I've heard syphilis a lot. It's it's actually pretty unlikely, I think, because there's no evidence that Constanzi had syphilis, and all of their children were born normally without any complications or problems. Well, what if he got it after? Yeah, sure, he could have, but unless they stopped relations, she would have gotten it. Well, if he if he had gotten it sometime that summer while he's away, wherever, and then he comes back, could he die that fast? Uh, no, I think syphilis takes longer to kill you. That's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. I think uh, Nietzsche had syphilis for years. Wow. That's Nietzsche. It's on a Nietzsche no basis. <laughs> Stop it. Sorry. <laughs> um, okay, so my two favorite uh, medical explanations. Please. There was this 2009 study that looked at death patterns in Vienna in the years surrounding Mozart's death. This sounds familiar to me. And they found a big jump in deaths in younger men right around the time of Mozart's fatal illness, and most of them had the same symptoms. And so researchers uh, cross-referenced this with, cross-referenced all the the symptoms and decided that it was probably a streptococcal infection, Mm. uh, an epidemic of of streptococcal virus. Um, which can lead to kidney dysfunction if it goes untreated, which would then cause most of the other symptoms we listed here. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, maybe he died of strep throat. I had strep constantly growing up. Well, it's a good thing you got it treated. You could have pulled a Mozart. Could have pulled a Mozart, yeah. (laughs) Um, And mentioning kidney dysfunction, um, just chronic kidney disease. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a big drinker. He was a big drinker, and chronic kidney disease often presents in your 30s. And once it's fully presented, you know, with the right pressures or strains or stresses, it can cause a pretty swift, sudden decline, even if you didn't know you had it. And um, 
it could easily have been caused either by genetics uh, modified by his drinking, right? Or by the chronic ulcerous molar that Mozart is confirmed to have suffered from since childhood. He never got it pulled? No, he just had this rotting tooth. Ugh. Well, I mean, dental hygiene, not even hygiene, but like dental health is not a joke. Cause no, but it's you pretty can, new. You can, right. But I mean, bacteria from a rotting tooth in your mouth could go to your heart, could go to your brain. It could have gone to his brain very easily and then made him all, you know, off balance, off kilter. He's banging his head. That's what this, it could have all led from his tooth. That's what this Martin Hatzinger felt was uh, was most likely in his, his paper. It, it was the most convincing thing I read, probably. My second favorite is definitely the streptococcus. There's also another idea here, and I feel like I've, I've heard of it re- related to Mozart, but... It was. I think it was brought up in the Royal Art of Poison, but it's been brought up for a number of other kind of controversial deaths of olden times. But a lot of times, um, doctors, you know, when when someone would die and they weren't quite sure what the illness was, it would be listed as like something fever. You know, it might be like a, a local name or whatever. They, they called this military fever, right? They said and we don't. We from- don't know quite nowadays what exactly we would know it as or whether it was a completely different illness that just doesn't exist anymore because we don't do some of the things at least in you know first world countries or whatever we might not do some of the things that people did back then in terms of hygiene or or clean water or whatever um so there are a lot of these sorts of deaths where people are wondering, oh, is it poison? Is it this or that? And it's just kind of an illness that we can't really place because we don't have all the information here in modern day. And yeah. they didn't have all the information back then. So they kind of call it this new illness, but it might be something that we do know, but just there's no link between them. Yeah. The uh, official cause of death listed on uh, listed by the... By the uh there wasn't an autopsy, but listed by the doctors at Mozart's death was a acute military fever. So, right, and there's—I mean, we don't have something specifically called military fever nowadays, but we have all different kinds of fevers and flus and sicknesses that it might have been, and they just didn't have the tools to identify it back then. Right now, but tell me about murder. Yes, could this carry have been murder? Well, I'm sure it could have, and that's why we're talking about it. Uh, Well, rumors certainly began early. Just a week after Mozart's death, the Berlin News Weekly had this item. Mozart is dead. Because his body swelled up after death, some people believe he was poisoned. Now that he is dead, the Viennese will at last realize what they have lost in him. In life, he was constantly the object of cabals, which which he at times may well have provoked by his irreverent manner. Most bodies swell up. After death, and with, his body with was gases and it, as decomposing sets in, and, and his body was swelling before death. Right, it was one of his symptoms. Hmm. Um, but if the but re- you know the the Berlin Gazette loves stirring the pot, that's love, fine for them. Uh, and if, I, I and it's the classic people are saying rumors are <laughs> swirling. It's like, well, who's people? You. Um, but if the genius didn't die of natural causes, then who did him in? And it's here that we'll bring. Antonio Sal- Antonio Salieri into the story. Do they name him? 
Because that's very slanderous. Uh, not in the week after Mozart's death, no. Okay. Um, but he is chief on the list of popular culprits historically. Right. Salieri was an Italian composer, born in 1750. He died in 1825. And he actually was a pretty important figure in his own right in the development of classical music and opera uh, with, I don't know any of his music because none of it survives popularly (laughs) into the modern uh, day. Yeah, I mean, you can find his compositions and people have recorded it and performed it, but it's not Mozart. But I'm told that to the trained ear, you can hear clear influences from Salieri's music on Mozart's music and many of the other composers who were in his orbit at the time. Interesting. And it makes sense. He was the director of the Italian opera for nearly two decades. In Italy. No, I don't think... In Italy, or at least not just in Italy. I think across the empire, he was in charge of Italian language opera. The concept of Italian opera. Yes. He was the director of the Italian opera, the concept. Right. That's cool. uh, For two decades. That included Mozart's whole run in Vienna. Mm -hmm. Um, So he obviously dominated. um, And Mozart's obviously an opera fan. He's probably going to see them. and He's writing them. Yeah. So he knows what's he knows what's up with opera, and um, yes, I think it, it was impossible not to be influenced by Salieri's work if you uh, lived in this time and place and, and were composing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his music has been overshadowed by those guys he helped inform those Haydn's and Mozart's, and um, and so you basically don't hear Salieri music today. After Mozart's move to Vienna, as I said, he would complain to his father in letters that there was a shadowy cabal of Italians. It's always, you know, we get a bad rap. In the Viennese musical hierarchy who were actively keeping him out of certain posts (laughs) or preventing his operas from being staged. Now, this isn't as exciting as the play version of their relationship, but it seems like Salieri and Mozart sometimes came into competition uh, and sometimes supported each other. Mm-hmm. They co love hate relationship. Lo- yeah, but, but even not even such high. No, certainly not such high highs and low lows as as the movie. You know. Well, yeah. Um, the movie has Salieri dress up like Mozart's dead father to commission his own funeral mass. Right. So, yeah, I don't think it's that. They they <laughs> co composed a few times. They wrote work together. Um, Salieri certainly seems to have been a big fan of Mozart's music. He went to many of his performances and in his last surviving letter, which was to his wife, uh, Mozart breathlessly fangirled about Salieri's reaction to the magic flute. Uh, Mm -hmm. He said, he wrote, he heard and saw with all his attention and from the overture to the last choir, there was not a piece that didn't elicit a bravo or a bellow out of him. Hmm. Uh, Nonetheless, Immediately after Salieri's 1825 death, unfounded rumors began to spread that he had previously attempted suicide, racked with guilt, after confessing to poisoning Mozart. And it's only after his death because this is kind of a slanderous thing and you Uh, wouldn't get away with saying stuff like that when the guy's alive? Yeah, although I think Salieri was pretty mad in the like couple of years before his death he was like crazy mad. like institutionalized yeah. yeah so i don't know how how much he would have done about it but right yeah um so yeah immediately after his death there were these rumors that he had confessed basically on his deathbed to poisoning mozart 
And then six years later, in 1831, Alexander Pushkin wrote the play Mozart and Salieri, which is a study in envy about Salieri poisoning Mozart. It would be adapted into an opera, appropriately, in 1898. And then, of course, Peter Schaeffer took this idea and ran with it in his hugely popular play Amadeus in 1979. And then its uh, 1984 film adaptation is Immortal. Yeah. Yeah. And and in Amadeus, you know, and the movie and the play, um, the, the love-hate sort of aspect of the relationship is much clearer than it might be to historians. Um, you know, it was obviously made more dramatically satisfying. Um, Salieri is like praying to God for Mozart's downfall, but also in love with Mozart's work because it's so beautiful. And then Salieri is like trying to drive Mozart crazy. And he is a shadowy cabal in and of himself because he's trying to prevent him from doing well because he's jealous of him. At the end, he's the one sitting by Mozart's bedside, getting the transcription of the final Requiem and everything. And, and, he didn't actively murder Mozart in the movie. He didn't, you know, there's no drop of poison or whatever, but he just drives him crazy until he just dies of being crazy. On purpose. I mean, that's his yes, plan. Yes, purposefully drives him crazy and to until death. he dies, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, and then he's not, he just stays unhappy for the rest of his life. Yeah, he's not happy with that. Then he Then he goes crazy and he tries to confess... And then he dies, and that's that. So you don't have to see Amadeus, but you have to see Amadeus if you you really have it, because should. it's really, really good. If you like movies, you gotta watch it. Yeah, and I think um, I think it, it also really runs with the idea that Mozart. He it's it's pretty well understood that Mozart liked um, rude humor. Yeah, he loved he loved a poop and a fart joke. Yeah, in his letters, he loved his whole family. Actually, his mother not not Leopold, but his mother and his uh, sister both loved poop and fart jokes. Also, and their letters to each other are filthy. Right, and uh, so they play that up in the film as well, where Salieri's this kind of stern, older Italian, you know, kind of very serious man, and Mozart's just this goofy, like fart joking little. Roman Roy, basically. Right. Um, but he is gifted beyond belief, and that is part of what drives Salieri just crazy with envy. And right. of course, you know, starting with Pushkin, um, even just seeing the possibility of that dramatically, you know, it's it's a great story if it's real. So to go like, these two giants of composing were around at the same time. This one's very serious and older. This one's kind of carefree and younger, but he's a prodigy. The other one's worked so hard to get where he is, and they clash, but they also love each other. And then one dies, you know, like it's very dramatic, even if there isn't like a huge drama-filled back and forth between them. So, of course, you're going to start rumors that way. I think Mozart might have been, he liked writing uh, dirty songs for his friends to sing when they were drinking. He liked to party. But I don't think he, like, I I think Tom Hulse made up the laugh, you know? Well. I don't think he was as as obnoxious, maybe. Well, he's not, like, motorboating his uh, to-be wife in the middle of a banquet or whatever. 
Yeah, not that I know of. <laughs> certainly at yeah. home. Yeah, like he was probably a goof, and he was certainly bad with money. Probably didn't think, take things seriously enough because he was so talented. There's a lot of people that are like that, um, who are so talented that they just can't really handle life. But he probably wasn't just like a, a farting, <laughs> cackling little imp running around or else no one would have wanted him around no matter how talented he was. God, when the movie fades to black, spoiler alert for <laughs> for Amadeus. I know we've, we've given every other plot uh, detail away, but this is the real spoilers at the end. It fades to black and then you just hear... <laughs> Which is the laugh that the character of, of uh, Mozart does throughout the film. It's kind of haunting Salieri even as he dies. Um, so it's great. Good stuff. <laughs> In real life, I'm sorry to tell you, there's basically no evidence that, I mean, this is just something that was made up. Well, like, you know, again, it's very dramatically intriguing and satisfying, you know? Absolutely. Um, also, very Shakespearean in a way. You know what else is intriguing, Carrie? Anything involving the Freemasons. Hell yeah. We know that for the last seven years of his life, Mozart was a Freemason. And so, obviously, several theories have tied uh, the composer's death to history's favorite boogeyman. Hit me with them. In 1861, this guy named Georg Friedrich Daumer. He sounds like a real Daumer. He's an interesting guy. Poet and philosopher? Mm. He was raised in a pretty religious household, and then he decided, like, religion's lame in, like, a, uh, a college freshman kind of a, <laughs> a way, and he went on this this very, like, years-long anti-religious tirade, basically, just, like, writing treatise after treatise after about how stupid uh, religion was, and then one day he just became a devout Catholic, Oop. <laughs> and he became super into that instead. Okay. And shortly into his becoming a devout Catholic, he took aim at the Masons... Who but he are. wasn't a Mason at any point. No. Okay. No, he never was. Uh, not that I know of. Well, he seems like a real flip-flopper, so I didn't know if he became a Mason and then renounced it. No, uh, but the Masons are the Catholics' favorite boogeymen. And Daumer claimed that Mozart was killed by the Masons for wanting to start a lodge of his own, or maybe even a whole new secret society. I don't think Mozart had... That Any kind of organizational, yes. like, to start a lodge? Uh, yeah, that sounds... <laughs> it does sound beyond his organizational yeah, capacity. Yeah, I don't think that was on his agenda. Um, later versions of the theory, maybe slightly more believably, would claim that the motive was revenge for revealing parts of the secret Masonic flute ritual in his opera, The Magic Flute. I think I have heard that conspiracy theory. Yeah, you see, there are 18 secrets of masonry revealed within the magic flute. And one of them is that they have a secret flute ritual? Well, no, it, it's sort of different symbols from the flute ritual that are worked into the show. Guys, I mean, if you got a flute ritual, like, you can't take it that seriously. Um, so, 18 secrets... And for this reason, Mozart was poisoned with mercury, which is associated in alchemy with the number eight, which I guess is close enough to 18. What? It's not, it's atomic number. It's just in alchemy for some reason. Because he did 18 things, so they, this is like. Oh, wait, I'm not done. I'm not <laughs> done with the numerology, but, but so eight is close enough. So let's kill him with mercury, which is eight, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
the 18th of November of that year was the first time that Mozart's Freemason cantata was performed at his lodge. And that had 18 sheets of music in it. Mm. And 18 days later was the day Mozart died. And Kennedy's secretary was named Lincoln, and Lincoln's secretary was named Kennedy. Yeah, and Lincoln uh, was shot in a theater. Link, uh, what was it? B- Booth shot Lincoln in a theater and then fled to a book depository? That can't be right. <laughs> a barn? I think it was a barn. Oh, yeah, it was a Well, he was eventually caught in a barn. Yeah, and then Lee Harvey Oswald shot Kennedy and fled to a theater. Yes. Anyway. Eerie stuff. (laughs) Well, it actually reminds me of um, when we were talking about the Vatican conspiracies, which also involved some Freemason stuff. Mm -hmm. But uh, when we were talking about like the the end time, supposed end times prophecies and like the last Pope and they were really trying to make Pope Francis the last Pope. And it's like, well, Francis's father's name was Francis of Assisi, who Pope Francis was named after. His father was named, I think it was Pietro or something. And so he's the last Peter and this is the end time. It's like, okay, that's Uh, a big, that's a lot of steps. It should be two steps max. Every numerological thing always feels like that to me. Yeah. It's always so stupid. Um, Anyway. Also, but but like it, it just, eight is not 18. He also <laughs> like you know it's just not he, the, the sheets and the days okay but like eight is not eighteen. Um, this whole theory would be revived again later in the forties by Matilda Ludendorff, a German psychiatrist and wife of the Nazi World War II general. Um, although there was a little bit of a twist of the narrative here, a Nazi twist, so that Mozart, in this, who was now cast as a nationalist. Austrian slash German figure was taken down by the Italian Freemasons because he wasn't conforming to their... Um, but he was a Freemason. Op- yeah, but he wasn't... Con- and the Nazis were friends with the Italians. But he wasn't conforming to their Italian musical standards because he was writing songs that were too proudly German, so they killed him. The Nazis really hated Freemasonry because they... Because they were like, our occult is the best occult. Well, for sure that, but also in Nazi kind of world cosmology, uh, the Freemasons were a front for the Jewish global revolution. And we've made it, guys. We've made it to the anti-Semitic point of no return, where every conspiracy eventually goes. Yeah, so the Jesuits and the Masons were, according to the Nazis, uh, spearhead fronts for a global... Jewish and Catholic conspiracy to establish a world state. What a team up. I know. I you, a lot of these groups arguably hate each other. Not a even lot ha- of the but time. like just just completely Well, the Jews and the uh Masons certainly or sorry, the Christian the Catholics and the Masons certainly. Yeah, but then, you know, also like the Jews and the Catholics, they they believe some fundamentally different things. Mhm. <laughs> Uh, well, we're going to disregard that one because it's the Nazis and they're stupid. Yeah. Incidentally, uh, symptoms of mercury poisoning include itching or burning skin, profuse sweating, a racing heart, high blood pressure, red rashes. But did we know mercury was bad? Yes. Then. You, you, they definitely knew that in sufficient amounts it would kill you quickly. 
what is this, the late 1700s? I mean, we're not too far away from Queen Elizabeth I covering herself in it. Yeah, but she knew, they even knew then, they knew that if you drank a cup of it, you would die. Yeah. Because it had happened. But I mean, he could have he could have consumed it in medicine. If he's doing a bunch of bloodletting, maybe they're giving him tablets. Mercury was used in medicine. It was used in tinctures. You're absolutely right. It he was. could have been conti- uh, continuously consuming it over a period of time, small bits at a time, slowly killing him. In fact, uh, Mozart's first patron, that doctor, was an early. Um, pioneer of mercury treatment oh i think i solved it sean so he has been pointed to as a possible poisoner of mozart as well but i don't but there's no it could have been not even not intentional though he could have been trying to treat mozart for whatever malady they thought could be cured by mercury which could have been anything from like hair loss to depression or whatever and in trying to treat him he accidentally killed him could be I think I solved it. I still like the rotting tooth. <laughs> the rotting tooth is good. I mean, it's bad, but it's also, it's a good theory. Because I, I haven't seen any evidence that he was... And then he could have just gotten an infection and, I've, you know. I, I've never seen accidental mercury poisoning seriously suggested by anybody scholarly. So, I just feel you're like... S- you're saying I'm not scholarly? I mean, apart from you, until <laughs> this very moment. So, I just wonder... I just I feel like that must mean there's not evidence that he uh, was treated with mercury for anything around the time, but who knows? You know, we found out so much so recently. Uh, our house still has lead paint around, you know? So I feel like there's any number of things. Asbestos used to be just a groovy building supply. Yeah. Now it's now it's bad. So, you know, he could have been he could have been playing on asbestos piano keys for all we know and just slowly getting poisoned that way. Yeah. Okay. So, it's always fun to talk about the Masons. Always. It's always fun to talk about F. Murray Abraham. I heard he was soft canceled. F. Murs? I which which I hate cuz I think he's a wonderful actor, but I did hear he was soft canceled. So, we're going to put a pin in that. He's sure. great in Amadeus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that. Well, I'm not going to touch it anymore until I find out um, that he didn't touch anything anymore. That's what she said. Then he should have. Um, but, in my opinion anyway, it's very likely that Mozart's death was natural. Mm-hmm. And scholars keep investigating and arguing over what might have killed him. Some of the surveys I was quoting in this uh episode or from the last decade so i think unless we have his remains which it seems like we don't or we don't know for sure uh we're never gonna really know we're only gonna know as much as they recorded back then and they they didn't know much in terms of you know what we know now anyway <laughs> so 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 why why are, are we so fascinated with this well I think with any controversial death of a famous person, it's always going to be fascinating to talk over. That's why we have a podcast. We, I mean, Edgar Allan Poe, you know, this episode kind of reminds me of that. And um, people are still debating what could have killed, because it was a mysterious death of a mysterious guy. And I think people who are especially true geniuses, either in, in places of 
just enormous power, like a president or a king, or these true geniuses, they seem so elevated above us, um, whether that's from their own design or just their talent. And I think we'll always be wondering about them. We'll, we'll wonder about how they came into such genius or such power. And we'll always wonder if there is a question how that genius or that power was taken from us. Yeah, they, they seem like larger than life, almost immortal figures. Yes. So, uh, but so many of them die young and tragically and mysteriously. Um, and, and, and that's part of the enigma as well like maybe if mozart lasted decades longer he could have tarnished his reputation somehow written some real crappy stuff just like james dean could have been in some terrible movies as an old man doing bad grandpa or whatever but he didn't he he died when he was still young and genius and immortal in a way so I think we're always going to be fascinated and we're never going to have all the answers and that will drive us crazy as human beings. And, and for early modern and earlier, especially ancient stuff, but for early modern deaths, I think it, it, it's fun to bring history closer to ourselves this way. It's like those guys who were looking at Beethoven's hair earlier this year. Mm -hmm. They were like checking out his DNA to, to try to figure out what killed Beethoven. Right. And I also think that these larger than life figures, you know, the one thing that unites everyone, we all live, but we all live very differently. But the thing is, we all die. <laughs> we haven't figured out a way not to do that yet. And for everyone so far, it's just the end. And that's it. And that I think humanizes these people that we see as gods in a way. Um. So it's always going to be interesting to speculate about that death because it's the one thing that brings him down to earth in, in such a real palpable way is that even he couldn't escape death no matter how much God or whatever favored him with this prodigal talent. Yeah, that's right. And um, he did write beautiful music that you still can enjoy today. Uh, mm -hmm. Go find any number of different recordings of these uh, these pieces on your uh, streaming service of choice mm -hmm. and uh, take a listen. I didn't include any music in this podcast because it's, um, boy, it's closing in on an hour and a half already. <laughs> I, I, we like talking about mysterious deaths of mysterious people. We love it. Um, and thank you, Air Mozart. Uh, for everything you left us. Yeah, thanks for the music, and, uh, well, at least a really good movie. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. I'm sure you were all expecting it. It's crying saucers.
Another government whistleblower has emerged literally crying saucers, and his name is David Grush. Get a look at his eyes. Grush? He has, he has the wide eyes of a government UFO defector. <laughs> well, uh, Grush, or Grush is a decorated former combat officer and former intelligence official with the U.S. Department of Defense, and he led analysis of unexplained anomalous phenomena, or UAPs, for the agency. Earlier this month, he disclosed to Congress that there are supposed deeply covert programs, which Grush Grush says, hmm, I should have listened to it. Grush says, uh, he, he says these deeply covert programs possess both intact and partially intact crafts of extraterrestrial origin. So that means, in his perspective, uh, the U.S. government has extraterrestrial stuff that they're hiding. I mean, wild stuff. Wild stuff. Uh, Grush claims that the information has been withheld from Congress and came into the public eye after filing a complaint alleging that he suffered suffered illegal retaliation for his confidential disclosures. The debrief, which helped to launch the story in the media, wrote, quote, Grush said that the recoveries of partial fragments through and up to intact vehicles have been made for decades through the present day by the government, its allies, and defense contractors. Analysis has determined that the objects retrieved are of exotic origin, non-human intelligence, whether extraterrestrial or unknown origin, based on the vehicle morphologies and material science testing and the possession of unique atomic arrangements and radiological signatures. So metals that aren't from Earth, energies that aren't from Earth. Yeah, just unknown origin. Don't know where they're from. We've never seen it before. The debrief also notes some character witnesses for Grush, including Carl E. Nell, a retired Army colonel and active aerospace executive who liaisoned with the UAP task force for the Army from 2021 to 22 and characterizes Grush as beyond reproach. In his work with the USP Task Force, Grush prepared many briefs on UAPs for Congress and even helped draft the language for the FY 2023 National Defense Authorization Act, which states that any person with relevant information regarding UAPs can inform Congress without retaliation, regardless of having signed any non-disclosure agreements previously. Grush alleges, however, that he did receive retaliation and reprisals due to confidential disclosures to the Department of Defense Inspector General, and he made these confidential disclosures regarding concerns about withholding UAP-related information from Congress. So he's telling the Inspector General, hey, the task force or whatever is not being 100% with you, and because of that, he says that he received retaliation, um, you know, in his career. We, we've heard it uh, cogently argued, uh, most notably, I think, on the Unbelievable podcast, <laughs> that um, U.S. naval intelligence has at times purposely set people up with what appeared to be extraterrestrial information to, to, to discredit yes to, to make sure that there are people high up who also get discredited because then you don't know what to believe do you think this is one of those i, 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 I mean I, he's part of the task force he, he he drafted some of the national defense authorization act which 
just was signed in December by Biden. Um, I mean, you know, he he's in the thick of it. So either he knows or he ha- he is being purposefully discredited and he's a patsy. And I mean, crazy people. Or can work he's in the a government. crazy. Yes, I mean, you know. So we'll definitely be discussing this story more in the coming weeks because more and more is coming out around it, but it's a heck of a starting point. It's very exciting. They're great headlines. Yeah. Alleging extraterrestrial craft in the hands of the U.S. government, keeping hidden from Congress. And this is right from the mouth of a member of the UAP task force. So we're definitely going to be hearing more about this. Um, And we'll keep you updated because this is a crazy story and... I don't know what to think at this point. Well, especially in the wake of all that, uh, you know, Chinese spy balloon stuff in mm-hmm. Russia. It's like, what was that? Yeah. Was that what they say it was? I don't know. Weather balloons. It's all weather balloons. Mm, always. Swamp gas. Swamp thing. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And special thanks to our beloved top tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakudis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Aussie Sean Downs, Ryan, Enrique, and Derek. We love you guys very much. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. Listen to Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time podcast. It's a fun show about weird stuff. New episodes every Wednesday, yeah, eggheads. I'm Art. And I'm Andy. And Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time is a podcast about conspiracies, the paranormal, UFOs, unsolved mysteries. We're going to be discussing the Kennedy assassinations. Oh, yeah. That's his nickname, finger-banging Bob Lazar. Give me some aliens with some good frickin' spacecraft. The whole enchilada. (laughs) The only thing bigger than Bigfoot's feet are our egos. If you like simulation theory, ancient history, egghead science, and Mandela effect, that kind of stuff. So check it out. New episodes every Wednesday. All the links you need on MrBunkersConspiracyTime.com. And we'll see you in the bunker.